listening to the Death by DVD 2021 Halloween Special. Frightful fables to fear at night. Scary stories that will chill you to the bone. <laughs> When age fell upon the world and wonder went out of the minds of men, when gray cities reared to smoky skies, tall towers grim and ugly, in whose shadow none might dream of the sun or spring's flowering meads, when learning stripped earth of her mantle of beauty and poets sang no more save of twisted phantoms seen with bleared and inward-looking eyes, when things had come to pass and childish hopes had gone away forever, there was a man who traveled out of life on a quest into the spaces whether the world's dreams had fled. Of the name and abode of this man but little is written, for they were of the waking world only. Yet it is said that both were obscure. It is enough to know that he dwelt in a city of high walls where sterile twilight reigned and that he toiled all day among shadow and turmoil, coming home at evening to a room whose one window opened not on the fields and groves but on a dim court where other windows stared in dull despair. From that casement one might see only walls and windows except sometimes when one leaned far out and peered aloft at the small stars that passed. And because mere walls and windows must soon drive to madness a man who dreams and reads much, the dweller in that room used night after day to lean out and peer aloft to glimpse some fragment of things beyond the waking world and the grayness of tall cities. After years he began to call the slow sailing stars by name and to follow them in fancy when they glided regretfully out of sight till at length his vision opened to many secret vistas whose existence no common eye suspects. And one night a mighty gulf was bridged and the dream-haunted skies dwelled down to the lonely watcher's window to merge with the close air of his room and make him part of their fabulous wonder. There came to that room wild streams of violet midnight glittering with dust of gold. Vortices of dust and fire swirling out of the ultimate spaces and heavy with perfume from beyond the worlds. Opiate oceans poured there, lit by suns that the eye may never behold, and having in their whirlpools strange dolphins and sea nymphs of unrememberable deeps. Noiseless infinity wafted around the dreamer and wafted him away without even touching the body that leaned stiffly from the lonely window. And for days not counted in men's calendars, the tides of far spheres bore him gently to join the dreams for which he longed, the dreams that men have lost. And in the course of many cycles, they tenderly left him sleeping on a green sunrise shore, a green shore fragrant with lotus blossoms and starred by red camelots. Azathoth by H.P. Lovecraft. Shortly after noon, the man unslugged his Geiger counter and placed it carefully upon a flat rock by a thick, inviting patch of grass. He listened to the faint, erratic background ticking for a moment, then snapped off the current. No point in running the battery down just to hear stray cosmic rays and residual radioactivity. So far, he'd found nothing potent, not a single trace of workable ore. Squatting, he unpacked an ample lunch of hard-boiled eggs, bread, fruit, and a thermos of black coffee. He ate hungrily, but with the neat crumbleless manners of an outdoorsman, and when the last bite was gone, he stretched out, braced on his elbows to sip the remaining drops of coffee. It felt mighty good, he thought, to get off your feet after a six-hour hike through rough country. As he lay there, savoring the strong brew, his gaze suddenly narrowed and became fixed. 
right before his eyes, artfully spun between two twigs and a small, mossy boulder. A cunning snare for the unwary spread its threads of wet silver in the network of death. It was the instinctive creation of a master engineer, a nearly perfect logarithmic spiral, stirring gently in a slight updraft. He studied it curiously, tracing with growing interest the special cable attached only at the ends that led from a silk cushion at the web center to a crevice in the boulder. He knew that the mistress of the snare must be hidden there, crouching with one hind foot on her primitive telegraph wire and awaiting those welcome vibrations which meant a victim thrashing hopelessly among the sticky threads. He turned his head and soon found her. Deep in the dark crevices, the spider's eyes formed a sinister jeweled pattern. Yes, she was at home, patiently watchful. It was all very efficient, and in a reflective mood, drowsy from his exertions and a full stomach, he pondered the small miracle before him. How a speck of protoplasm, a mere dot of white nerve tissue which was a spider's brain, had antendated the mind of Euclid by countless centuries. Spiders are an ancient race. Ages before man wrought wonders through his subtle abstractions of points and lines, a spiral not to be distinguished from this one winnowed the breezes of some prehistoric summer. Then he blinked, his attention once more sharpened. A glowing gem, glistening metallic blue, had planted itself squarely upon the web. As if manipulated by a conjurer, the blue bottle fly had appeared from nowhere. It was an exceptionally fine specimen, he decided. Large, perfectly formed, and brilliantly rich in hue. He eyed the insect wanderingly. Where was the usual panic? The frantic struggling, the shrill, terrified buzzing. It rested there with an odd indifference to restraint that puzzled him. There was at least one reasonable explanation. The fly might be sick or dying. The prey of parasites, fungi, and the ubiquitous roundworms shattered the ranks of even the most fertile. So unnaturally still this fly that the spider, wholly unaware of its feathery landing, dreamed on in her shaded lair. Then, as he watched, the blue bottle, stupidly perverse, gave a single sharp tug. Its powerful wings blurred momentarily and a high-pitched buzz sounded. The man sighed, almost tempted to interfere. Not that it mattered much how soon the fly betrayed itself. Eventually, the spider would have made a routine inspection, and unlike most people, he knew her for a staunch friend of man. A tireless killer of insect pests. It was not for him to steal her dinner or tear her web. But now, silent and swift, a pea on eight hairy, agile legs, she glided over her swaying net. An age-old tragedy was about to be enacted, and the man waited with pitying interest for the inevitable denotement. About an inch from her prey, the spider paused briefly, estimating the situation with diamond-bright, soulless eyes. The man knew what would follow. Utterly contemptuous of a mere fly, however large, lacking either sting or fangs, the spider would unhesitatingly close in, swath the insect with silk and drag it to her nest in the rock there to be drained at leisure. But instead of a fearless attack, the spider edged cautiously nearer. She seemed doubtful, even uneasy. The fly's strange passivity apparently worried her. He saw the needle-pointed mandibles working ludicrously suggestive of a woman wringing her hands in agonized indecision. Reluctantly, she crept forward. In a moment, she would turn about, squirt a preliminary jet of silk over the blue bottle, and by dexterously rotating the fly with her hind legs, wrap it in a gleaming shroud. And, so it appeared, foresatisfied with a closer inspection, she forgot her fears and whirled, thrusting her spinnerets toward the motionless insect. Then, the man saw a startling and incredible thing. There was a metallic flash as a jointed, shining rod stabbed from the fly's head like some fantastic rapier. It licked out with lightning precision, pierced the spider's plump abdomen, and remained extended, forming a terrible link between them. 
He gulped, tense with disbelief. A blue bottle fly, a mere lapper of carrion with an extensible sucking proboscis. It was impossible. Its tongue is only an absorbing cushion designed for sponging up liquids. But then, was this really a fly after all? Insects often mimic each other and he was no longer familiar with such points. No, a blue bottle is unmistakable. Besides, this was a true fly, two wings and everything. Rusty or not, he knew that much. The spider had stiffened as the queer lance struck home. Now she was rigid, obviously paralyzed, and her swollen abdomen was contracting like a tiny fist as the fly sucked its juices through that slender, pulsating tube. He peered more closely, raising himself to his knees and longing for a lens. It seemed to his straining gaze as if that gruesome beak came not from the mouth region at all, but through a minute hatch-like opening between the faceted eyes with a nearly invisible square door ajar. But that was absurd. It must be the glare, and ah, flickering, the rod retracted. There was definitely no such opening now. Apparently, the bright sun was playing tricks. The spider stood shriveled, a pitiful husk, still upright on her thin legs. One thing was certain. He must have this remarkable fly. If not a new species, it was surely very rare. Fortunately, it was stuck fast in the web. Killing the spider could not help it. He knew the steely toughness of those elastic strands, each a tight helix filled with superbly tenacious gum. Very few insects, and those only among the strongest, ever tear free. He gingerly extended his thumb and forefinger. Easy now. He had to pull the fly loose without crushing it. Then he stopped, almost touching the insect and staring hard. He was uneasy, a little frightened. A brightly glowing spot, brilliant even in the glaring sunlight, was throbbing on the very tip of the blue abdomen. A reedy, barely audible whine was coming from the trapped insect. He thought momentarily of fireflies, only to dismiss the notion with scorn for his own stupidity. Of course, a firefly is actually a beetle, and this thing was. Not that, anyway. Excited, he reached forward again, but as his plucking fingers approached, the fly rose smoothly in a vertical ascent, lifting a pyramid of taut strands and tearing a gap in the web as easily as a falling stone. The man was alert, however. He cupped his hand, nervously swift, snapped over the insect and gave a satisfied grunt. But the captive buzzed in his eager grasp with a furious vitality that appalled him, and he yelped as a searing, slashing pain scalded the sensitive palm. Involuntarily, he relaxed his grip. There was a streak of electric blue as his prize soared, glinting into the sun. For an instant, he saw that odd glowworm taillight, a dazzling spark against the darker sky. Then, nothing. He examined the wound, swearing bitterly. It was purple and already little blisters were forming. There was no sign of puncture. Evidently, the creature had not used its lancet, but merely spurted venom. Acid, perhaps, on the skin. Certainly, the injury felt very much like a bad burn. Damn. Blast! He'd kicked away a real find, an insect probably new to science. With a little more care, he might have caught it. Stiff and vexed, he got sullenly to his feet and repacked the lunch kit. He reached for the Geiger counter, snapped on the current, took one step towards a distant rocky outcrop and froze. The slight background noise had given way to a veritable roar, an electronic avalanche that could mean only one thing. He stood there, scrutinizing the grassy knoll and shaking his head in profound mystification. Frowning, he put down the counter. As he withdrew his hand, the frantic chatter quickly faded out. He waited, half-stooped, a blank look in his eyes. Suddenly, they lit with doubting, half-fearful comprehension. Cat-like, he stalked the clicking instrument, holding one arm outstretched, gradually advancing the blistered palm. 
and the Geiger counter raved anew. The Fly by Arthur Porges It was the other porters who made Ned determined to find out who answered the phone in the old man's house. Not that he hadn't wanted to know before. He'd felt it was his right almost as soon as the whole thing had begun, months ago. He'd been sitting behind his desk in the library entrance, waiting for someone to try and take a bag into the library so he could shout after them that they couldn't, when the reference librarian ushered the old man to Ned's desk and said, Let this gentleman use your phone. Maybe he hadn't meant every time the old man came to the library, but then he should have said so. The old man used to talk to the librarian and tell him things about books even he didn't know, which is why he let him use the phone. All Ned could do was feel resentful. People weren't supposed to use his phone, and even he wasn't allowed to phone outside the building. And it wasn't as if the old man's calls were interesting. Ned wouldn't have minded if they'd been worth hearing. I'm coming home now. That was all he ever said. Then he'd put the receiver down and hurry away. It was the way he said it that made Ned wonder. There was no feeling behind the words. They sounded as if he were saying them only because he had to, perhaps wishing he needn't. Ned knew people talk like that. His parents didn't church and most of the time at home. He wondered if the old man was calling his wife because he wore a ring on his wedding finger. Although, in the claw where a stone would be was what looked like a piece of yellow fingernail. But Ned didn't think it could be his wife. Each day, the old man left the library at the same time, so why would he bother to phone? Then, there was the way the old man looked at Ned when he phoned, as if he didn't matter, and he couldn't understand the way most of the porters looked at him. That was the look that swelled up inside Ned one day and made him persuade one of the other porters to take charge of his desk while Ned waited to listen in on the old man's call. The girl who always smiled at Ned was on the switchboard and they listened together. They heard the phone in the house ringing, then lifted, and the old man's call and his receiver go down. Nothing else. Not even breathing apart from the old man's. Who do you think it is, the girl said. But Ned thought she'd laugh if he said he didn't know. He shrugged extravagantly and left. Now he was determined. The next time the old man came to the library, Ned phoned his house, having read what the old man dialed. When the ringing began, its pulse sounded deliberately slow, and Ned felt the pumping of his blood rushing ahead. Seven trills on the phone in the house opened with a violent click. Ned held his breath, but all he could hear was his blood thumping in his ears. Hello? He said after a silence, clearing his throat. Hello? Perhaps it was one of those answering machines people in films used for their offices. He felt foolish and uneasy greeting the wide, silent metal ear and put down the receiver. He was in bed and falling asleep before he wondered why the old man would be telling an answering machine that he was coming home. The following day in the bar where all the porters went at lunchtime, Ned told them about the silently listening phone. He's weird, that old man, he said, but now the others had finished joking with him. They didn't seem interested, and he had to make a grab for the conversation. He reads weird books, he said, all about witches and magic. Real ones, not stories. Yeah, now tell us something we don't know, someone said, and the conversation turned its back on Ned. His attention began to wander. He lost his hold on what was being said. He had to smile and nod as usual when they looked at him. He was thinking, they're looking at me like the old man does. I'll show them. I'll go into his house and I'll see who's there. Maybe I'll take something that'll show I've been there. Then, they'll have to listen to me. But... Next day at lunchtime, when he arrived at the address he'd seen on the old man's library card, Ned felt more like knocking at the front door and running away. The house was menacingly big, 
The end house of a street whose other windows were brightly bricked up. Exposed foundations like broken teeth protruded from the mud that surrounded the street while hundreds of yards away stood a five-story crescent of flats that looked as if it had been designed in sections to be fitted together by a two-year-old. Ned tried to keep the houses between him and the flats as he peered into the windows. All he could see through the grimy front window was bare floorboards. When he coaxed himself to look through the side window, the same. He dreaded being caught by the old man even though he'd seen him sitting behind a pile of books ten minutes ago. It had taken Ned that long to walk here. The old man couldn't walk so fast and there wasn't a bus he could catch. At last, Ned dodged round the back and peered into the kitchen. A few plates in the sink, some tins of food, and an old cooker. Nobody to be seen. He returned to the front, wondering what to do. Maybe he'd knock after all. He took hold of the bar of the knocker, trying to think of what he'd say, and the door opened. The hall leading back to the kitchen was long and dim. Ned stood shuffling indecisively on the step. He would have to decide soon, for his lunch hour was dwindling. It was like one of the empty houses he used to play in with other children, daring each other to go up the tottering stairs. Even the things in the kitchen didn't seem to be lived in. He'd show them all. He went in. Acknowledging a vague idea that the old man's companion was out, he closed the door to hear if they returned. On his right was the front room. On his left, past the stairs and the phone, another of the bare rooms he'd seen. He tiptoed upstairs. The stairs creaked and swayed a little, perhaps unused to somebody of Ned's weight. He reached the landing, breathing heavily, feeling dust chafe his throat. Stairs led up to a closed attic door, but he looked in the rooms off the landing. Two of the doors which he opened stealthily showed him nothing but boards and flurries of floating dust. The landing in front of the third looked cleaner, as if the door were opened more often. He pulled it toward him, holding it up all the way so it didn't scrape the floor as he entered. Most of it didn't seem to make sense. There was a single bed with faded sheets. Against the walls were tables and piles of old books. Even some of the books looked disused. There were black candles and racks of small cardboard boxes. On one of the tables lay a single book. Ned padded across the fragments of carpet and opened the book in a thin path of sunlight through the shutters. Inside the sagging covers was a page which Ned slowly realized had been ripped from the Bible. It was the story of Lazarus. Scribbles that might be letters filled the margin at the bottom of the page. P. 4. 9. 1. Suddenly inspired, Ned turned to that page in the book. It showed a drawing of a corpse sitting up in his coffin, but the book was all in the language they sometimes used in church. Latin. He thought of asking one of the librarians what it meant. Then, he remembered that he needed proof he'd been in the house. He stuffed the page from the Bible into his pocket. As he crept swiftly downstairs, something was troubling him. He reached the hall and thought he knew what it was. He still didn't know who lived in the house with the old man. If they lived in the back, perhaps, there'd be signs in the kitchen. Though if it were his wife, Ned thought as he hurried down the hall. She couldn't be like Ned's mother, who would never have left torn strips of wallpaper hanging at shoulder height from both walls. He'd reached the kitchen door when he realized what had been bothering him. When he'd emerged from the bedroom, the attic door had been open. He looked back involuntarily and saw a woman walking away from him down the hall. He was behind the closed kitchen door before he had time to feel fear. That came only when he saw the back door was nailed rustily shut. Then he controlled himself. She was only a woman. She couldn't do much if she found him. He opened the door minutely. The hall was empty. Halfway down the hall, he had to slip into the side room, heart punching his chest, for she'd appeared again from between the stairs and the front door. He felt the beginnings of anger and recklessness, and they grew faster when he opened the door and had to flinch back as he saw her hand passing. The fingers looked famished, the color of old lard with long, yellow, cracked nails. There was no nail on her wedding finger, which wore only a plain ring. She was returning from the direction of the kitchen, which was why Ned hadn't expected her. 
Through the opening of the door, he heard her padding upstairs. She sounded barefoot. He waited until he couldn't hear her, then edged into the hall. The door began to fall open with a faint creak and he heard it stealthily closed. He paced toward the front door. If he hadn't seen her shadow creeping down the stairs, he would have come face to face with her. He was listening behind the kitchen door and neared a panic when he realized she knew he was in the house. She was playing a game with him. At once he was furious. She was only an old woman. Her body beneath the long white dress was sure to be as thin as her hands. She could only shout when she saw him. She couldn't stop him from leaving. In a minute, he'd be late for work. He threw open the kitchen door and swaggered down the hall. The sight of her lifting the phone receiver broke his stride for a moment. Perhaps she was phoning the police. He hadn't done anything. She could have her Bible page back, but she had laid the receiver beside the phone. Why? Was she making sure the old man couldn't ring? As she unbent from stooping to the phone, she grasped two uprights of the banisters to support herself. They gave a loud, splintering creak and bent together. Ned halted, confused. He was still struggling to react when she turned toward him and he saw her face. Part of it was still on the bone. He didn't back away until she began to advance on him her nails tearing new strips from both walls. All he could see was her protruding eyes, unsupported by flesh. His mind was backing away faster than he was, but it had come up against a terrible insight. He even knew why she'd made sure the old man couldn't interrupt until she'd finished. His calls weren't like speaking to an answering machine at all. They were exactly like switching off a burglar alarm. Call First, written by Ramsey Campbell. Stretched at ease upon a sofa in a gown and slippers, Harker Brayton smiled as he read the foregoing sentence in Morister's Marvels of Science. The only marvel in the matter, he said to himself, is that the wise and learned in Morister's day should have believed such nonsense as is rejected by most of even the ignorant in ours. A train of reflection followed. For Brayton was a man of thought, and he unconsciously lowered his book without altering the direction of his eyes. As soon as the volume had gone below the light of sight, something in an obscure corner of the room recalled his attention to his surroundings. What he saw in the shadow under his bed were two small points of light, apparently about an inch apart. They might have been reflections of the gas jet above him in metal nail heads. He gave them but little thought and resumed his reading. A moment later, something, some impulse, which it did not occur to him to analyze, impelled him to lower the book again and seek for what he saw before. The points of light were still there. They seemed to have become brighter than before, shining with a greenish luster which he had not at first observed. He thought too that they might have moved a trifle, were somewhat nearer. They were still too much in the shadows, however, to reveal their nature and origin to an indolent attention, and he resumed his reading. Suddenly, something in the text suggested a thought which made him start and drop the book for the third time to the side of the sofa. Wince escaping from his hand, it fell sprawling to the floor, back upward. Brayton, half-risen, was staring intently into the obscurity beneath the bed where the points of light shone with, it seemed to him, an added fire. His attention was now fully aroused, his gaze eager and imperative. It disclosed almost directly beneath the footrail of the bed the coils of a large serpent. The points of light were its eyes. Its horrible head thrust flatly from the innermost coil and resting upon the outermost was directed straight toward him. 
the definition of the wide, brutal jaw and the idiot-like forehead serving to show the direction of its malevolent gaze. The eyes were no longer merely luminous points. They looked into his own with meaning, a malign significance. A snake in a bedroom of a modern city dwelling of the better sort is happily not so common a phenomena as to make explanation altogether needless. Harker Brayton, a bachelor of 35, a scholar, idler, and something of an athlete, rich, popular, and sound of health had returned to San Francisco from all manner of remote and unfamiliar countries. His tastes, always a trifle luxurious, had taken on an added exuberance from long privation, and the resources of even the Castle Hotel being inadequate for their perfect gratification, he gladly accepted the hospitality of his friend, Dr. Druring, the distinguished scientist. Dr. Druring's house, a large old-fashioned one in what was now an obscure quarter of the city, had an outer and visible aspect of reserve. It plainly would not associate with the contiguous elements of its altered environment and appeared to have developed some of the eccentricities which come of isolation. One of these was a wing, conspicuously irrelevant in point of architecture and no less rebellious in the matter of purpose, for it was a combination of laboratory, menagerie, and museum. It was here that the doctor indulged the scientific side of his nature in the study of such forms of animal life as engaged his interest and comforted his taste, which, it must be confessed, ran rather to the lower forms. For one of the higher types, nimbly and sweetly to recommend itself unto his gentle senses, it had to at least retain a certain rudimentary characteristics, allying it to such dragons of the prime as toads and snakes. Ribbit. His scientific sympathies were distinctly reptilian. He loved nature's vulgarians and described himself as the Zola of zoology. His wife and daughters, not having the advantage to share his enlightened curiosity regarding the works and ways of our ill-starred fellow creatures, were, with needless austerity, excluded from what he called the snakery, and doomed to companionship with their own kind. Though to soften the rigors of their lot, he had permitted them, out of his great wealth, to outdo the reptiles and the gorgeousness of their surroundings and to shine with superior splendor. Architecturally and in point of furnishing, the snakery had a severe simplicity befitting the humble circumstances of its occupants, many of whom indeed could not safely have been entrusted with the liberty which is necessary to the full enjoyment of luxury, for they had troublesome peculiarity of being alive. In their own apartments, however, they were under as little personal restraint as was compatible with their protection from the baneful habit of swallowing one another. And, as Brayton had thoughtfully been apprised, it was more than a tradition that some of them had at divers times been found in parts of the premises where it would have embarrassed them to explain their presence. Despite the snakery and its uncanny associations, to which indeed he gave little attention, Brayton found life at the Druring Mansion very much to his mind. Beyond a smart shock of surprise and a shudder of mere loathing, Mr. Brayton was not greatly affected. His first thought was to ring the call bell and bring a servant, but although the bell cord dangled within his reach, he made no movement towards it. It occurred to his mind that the act might subject him to the suspicion of fear, which he certainly did not feel. He was more keenly conscious of the incurious nature of the situation than affected by its perils. It was revolting, but absurd. The reptile was of a species with which Brayton was unfamiliar. Its length could only be conjecture. The body at the largest visible part seemed about as thick as his forearm. In what way was it dangerous, if in any way? Was it venomous? Was it a constrictor? His knowledge of nature's danger signals did not enable him to say. He had never deciphered the code. If not dangerous, the creature was at least offensive. It was the true matter of place. 
an impertinence. The gym was unworthy of the setting. Even the barbarous taste of our time and country, which had loaded the walls of the room with pictures, the floor with furniture, and the furniture with bric-a-brac, had not quite fitted the place for this bit of the savage life of the jungle. Besides, insupportable thought, the exhalations of its breath mingled with the atmosphere which he himself was breathing. These thoughts shaped themselves with greater or less definition in Brayton's mind and begot action. The process is what we call consideration and decision. It is thus that we are wise and unwise. It is thus that the withered leaf in an autumn breeze shows greater or less intelligence than its fellow falling upon the land or upon the lake. The secret of human action is an open one. Something contracts our muscles. Does it matter if we give the preparatory molecular changes the name of will? Brayton rose to his feet and prepared to back softly away from the snake without disturbing it, if possible, and through the door. People retire from the presence of the great, for greatness is power and power is menace. He knew that he could walk backward without obstruction and find the door without error. Should the monster follow, the taste which had plastered the walls with paintings had consistently supplied a rack of murderous oriental weapons from which he could snatch one to suit the occasion. In the meantime, the snake's eyes burned with more pitiless malevolence than ever. Brayton lifted his right foot free to the floor to step backward. That moment he felt a strong aversion to doing so. I... I'm accounted brave, he murmured. Is bravery then no more than pride? Because there are none to witness the shame I shall retreat? He was steadying himself with his right hand upon the back of a chair, his foot suspended. Nonsense, he said aloud. <laughs> I am not so great a coward as to fear to seem to myself afraid. Nonsense. He lifted the foot a little higher by slightly bending the knee and thrust it sharply to the floor, an inch in front of the other. He could not think how that occurred. A trial with the left foot had the same result. It was again in advance of the right. The hand upon the chair was grasping it. The arm was straight, reaching somewhat backward. One might have seen that he was reluctant to lose his hold. The snake's malignant head was still thrust forward from the inner coil as before, the neck level. It had not moved, but its eyes were now electric sparks radiating an infinity of luminous needles. The man had an ashy pallor. Again he took a step forward, and another partially dragging the chair, which when finally released fell upon the floor with a crash. The man groaned. The snake made neither sound nor motion, but its eyes were two dazzling suns. The reptile itself was wholly concealed by them. They gave off enlarging rings of rich and vivid colors, which at their greatest expansion successfully vanished like soap bubbles. They seemed to approach his very face, and anon were an immeasurable distance away. He heard somewhere the continual throbbing of a great drum with desolatory bursts of far music, inconceivably sweet like the tones of an alien harp. He knew it for the sunrise melody of Memnon's statue and thought he stood in the nail-side reeds, hearing with exalted sense the immortal anthem through the silence of the centuries. The music ceased. Rather, it became by insensible degrees the distant rolls of a retreating thunderstorm. A landscape glittering with sun and rain stretched before him, arched with vivid rainbows framing in its giant curve a hundred visible cities. In the middle distance, a vast serpent wearing a crown reared its head out of its voluminous convolutions and looked at him with his dead mother's eyes. Suddenly, this enchanting landscape seemed to rise swiftly upwards like the drop of a scene at a theater and vanished in a blank.
Something struck him a hard blow upon the face and breast. He had fallen to the floor. The blood ran from his broken nose and his bruised lips. For a moment he was dazed and stunned and lay with his closed eyes, his face against the door. In a few moments he had recovered and then realized that his fall, by withdrawing his eyes, had broken the spell which held him. He felt that now, by keeping his gaze averted, he would be able to retreat. But the thought of the serpent within a few feet of his head, yet unseen, perhaps in the very act of springing upon him and throwing its coils about his throat, was too horrible. He lifted his head, stared again into those baleful eyes, and was again in bondage. The snake had not moved and appeared somewhat to have lost its powers upon the imagination. The gorgeous illusions of a few moments before were not repeated. Beneath that flat and brainless brow, its black, beady eyes simply glittered, as at first, with an expression unspeakably malignant. It was as if the creature, knowing its triumph assured, had determined to practice no more alluring wiles. Now ensued a fearful scene. The man, prone upon the floor within a yard of his enemy, raised the upper part of his body with his elbows, his head thrown back, his legs extended to their full length. His face was white between its gouts of blood. His eyes were strained upon to their uttermost expansions. There was froth upon his lips. It dropped off in flakes. Strong convulsions ran through his body, making almost serpentine undulations. He bent himself at the waist, shifting his legs from side to side, and every moment left him a little nearer to the snake. He thrust his hands forward to brace himself back, yet constantly advanced upon his elbows. Dr. Drearing and his wife sat in the library. The scientists were in rare good humor. I've just obtained, by exchange with another collector, he said, a splendid specimen of the Ophiophagus. And what may that be? The lady inquired with a somewhat languid interest. Why, bless my soul, what profound ignorance. My dear, a man who ascertains after marriage that his wife does not know Greek is entitled to a divorce. The Ophiophagus is a snake which eats other snakes. I hope it will eat all yours, she said absently, shifting the lamp. But how does it get the other snakes? By charming them, I suppose. That's just like you, dear, said the doctor with an affectionate petulance. You know how Irritating to me any allusion to that vulgar superstition about the snake's power of fascination? The conversation was interrupted by a mighty cry which ran through the silent house like the voice of a demon shouting in a tomb. Again and yet again it sounded with terrible distinctness. They sprang to their feet, the man confused and the lady pale and speechless with fright. Almost before the echoes of the last cry had died away, the doctor was out of the room, springing up the staircase two steps at a time. In the corridor in front of Brayton's chamber, he met some servants who had come from the upper floor. Together, they rushed at the door without knocking. It was unfastened and gave way. Brayton lay upon his stomach on the floor, dead. His head and arms were partially concealed under the footrail of the bed. They pulled the body away, turning it upon the back. The face was daubed with blood and froth. The eyes were wide open, staring a dreadful sight. Ah, oh, died in a fit, said the scientist bending his knee and placing his hand upon the heart. While in that position, he happened to glance under the bed. Good God! How did this thing get in here? 
He reached under the bed, pulled out the snake, and flung it, still coiled to the center of the room. Wince! With a harsh shuffling sound, it slid across the polished floor till it stopped by the wall where it lay without motion. It was a stuffed snake. Its eyes were two shoe buttons. The Man and the Snake, written by Ambrose Bierce. It was one of those freezing late November nights just before the winter snows when a funny east wind comes howling down out of the mountains and across Woodbine Lake a quarter mile from the village. The sound that the wind makes is something hellish, full of screams and wailings that can raise the hackles on your neck if you're not used to it. In the old days, the Indians who used to live around here called it a black wind. They believed it carried the voices of evil spirits, and that if you listened to it long enough, it could drive you insane. Well, there are a lot of superstitions in our part of upstate New York. Nobody pays much mind to them in this modern age. Or if they do, they won't admit to it themselves. The fact is, though, that when the black wind blows, the local folks stay pretty close to home in the village. Like as not, it's deserted after dark. That was the way it was on this night. I hadn't had a customer in my diner for more than an hour, since just before 7 o'clock, and I had just about decided to close up early and go home to a glass of brandy and a good, hot fire. I was pouring myself a last cup of coffee when the headlights swung into the diner's parking lot. They whipped in fast up the county highway, and I heard the squeal of brakes on the gravel just out front. Ah, it's kids, I thought, because that was the way a lot of them drove, even around here, fast and a little reckless. But it wasn't kids. It turned out instead to be a man and a woman in their late thirties. Strangers, both of them bundled up in winter coats and mufflers, the woman carrying a big fancy alligator purse. The wind came in with them, shrieking and swirling. I could feel the numbing chill of it even in the few seconds the door was open. It cuts right through you like the blade of a knife, that wind. Right straight to the bone. The man clumped immediately to where I was behind the counter, letting the woman close the door. He was handsome in a suave, barbered, city kind of way, but his face was closed up in a mask of controlled rage. Coffee, he said. The word came out in a voice that matched his expression. Hard and angry, like a threat. Sure thing. Two coffees. One coffee, he said. Let her order her own. The woman had come up on his left, but not close to him. One stool between them. She was nice looking in the same kind of made-up big city way. Or she would have been if her face wasn't pinched up worse than his. The skin across her cheekbones was stretched so tight it seemed ready to split. Her eyes glistened like a pair of wet stones and didn't blink at all. Black coffee, she said to me. I looked at her at him, and I started to feel a little uneasy. There was a kind of savage tension between them, thick and crackling. I could feel it like static electricity. I wet my lips, not saying anything, and reached behind me for the coffee pot and two mugs. The man said, I'll have a ham and cheese sandwich on rye bread. No mustard, no mayonnaise. Just butter. Make it to go. Yes, sir. How about you, ma'am? Tuna fish on white, she said thinly. She had close-cropped blonde hair, wind-tangled under a loose scarf. She kept brushing at it with an agitated hand. I want to eat here. No, she won't, the man said to me. Make it to go just like mine. She threw him an ugly look. I want to eat here. Fine, he said to me again. It was as if she wasn't there. But I'm leaving here in five minutes as soon as I drink my coffee. And I want that ham and cheese ready by then. Yes, sir. I finished pouring out the coffee and set the two mugs on the counter. The man took his, swung around, and stomped over to one of the tables. 
He sat down and stared at the door, blowing into the mug, using it to warm his hands. All right. The woman said. All right, all right, all right, all right. Four times, just like that, all to herself. Her eyes had cold little lights in them now, like spots of foxfire. I said hesitantly, ma'am, do you still want the tuna sandwich to eat here? She blinked then, for the first time, and focused on me. No, to hell with it. I don't want anything to eat. She caught up her mug and took it to another of the tables, two away from the one he was sitting at. I went down to the sandwich board and got out two pieces of rye bread and spread them with butter. The stillness in there had a strained feel, made almost eerie by the constant wailing outside. I could feel myself getting more jittery as the seconds passed. While I sliced the ham, I watched the two of them at the tables, him still staring out the door, drinking his cup in quick, angry sips, her face the other way, her hands fisted in her lap, the steam from the cup spiraling up around her face. Well-off married couple from New York, I thought. They were both wearing the same type of expensive wedding ring, and maybe they were on their way to a weekend in the mountains, or up to Canada for a few days, and they'd had a hell of a fight or something the way married people do on long, tiring drives. That's all there was to it. Except that wasn't all there was to it. I've owned this diner for 30 years, and I've seen a lot of folks come and go in that time. A lot of tourists from the city with all sorts of marital problems, but I'd never seen anything like these two. That tension between them wasn't anything fresh-born. Wasn't just a brief and meaningless aftermath of a squabble. No, 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 no. There was real hatred on both sides. The kind that builds and builds and builds and builds, seething over long, bitter weeks or months or even years. The kind that's liable to explode someday. Well, it wasn't really any of my business. Not unless the blow-up happened in here. And it wasn't. And that wasn't likely. Or so I kept telling myself. But I was a little worried just the same. On a night like this with the damn black wind blowing and playing hell with people's nerves, anything could happen. Anything at all. I finished making the sandwich, cut it in half and plastic bagged it. Just as I slid it into a paper sack, there was a loud banging noise from across the room that made me jump half a foot. It sounded like a pistol shot, but it had only been the man slamming his empty mug down on the table. I took a breath, let it out silently. He scraped his chair as I did that, stood up and jammed his hands into his coat pockets. Without looking at her, he said to the woman, You pay for the food, and started past her table toward the restrooms in the rear. She said, Why the hell should I pay for it? He paused and glared back at her. You've got all the money. I've got all the money? Oh, that's a laugh. I've got all the money. Oh, go on. Keep it up. Then, in a louder voice, as if he wanted to make sure I heard it, he said, Bitch! And then stalked away from her. She watched him until he was gone inside the corridor leading to the restrooms. She was as rigid as a chunk of wood. She sat that way for another five or six seconds, until the wind gusted outside thudded against the door and the window like something trying to break in. Jerkily, she got to her feet and came over to where I was at the sandwich board. Those cold lights still glowed in her eyes. Is his sandwich ready? I nodded and made myself smile. Will that be all, ma'am? No, I've changed my mind. I want something to eat, too. She leaned forward and stared at the glass pastry container on the back counter. What kind of pie is that? Cinnamon apple. I'll have a piece of it. Okay, sure. Just one? Yes, just one. I turned back there, got the pie out, cut a slice, and wrapped it in waxed paper. When I came around with it, she was rummaging in her purse, getting her wallet out. Back in the restroom area, I heard the man's hard, heavy steps, and the next second he appeared and headed straight for the door. The woman said, How much do I owe you? I put the pie into the paper sack with the sandwich and the sack on the counter. That'll be 380. The man opened the door. The wind came shrieking in, eddying drafts of icy air. He went right out, not even glancing at the woman or me, and then slammed the door right behind him. She laid a $5 bill on the counter, caught up the sack, pivoted, and started for the door. Ma'am, I said, you've got some change coming. She must have heard me, but she didn't look back and she didn't slow up. The pair of headlights came on out front, slicing pale wedges from the darkness. Through the front windows, I could see the evergreens at the far edge of the lot, thick 
dark, swaying shadows bent almost double by the wind. The shrieking rose up for two or three seconds, then fell back to a muted whine. She was gone. I honestly had never been gladder or more relieved to see a customer go. I let out another breath, picked up the fiver, and moved over to the cash register. Outside, above the thrumming and wailing, the car engine revved up to a roar and there was a ratcheting noise of its tires spinning on the gravel. The headlights shot around and probed out toward the county highway. Time now to close up and go home. Alright. I wanted a glass of brandy and a good hot fire more than ever. I went around to the tables they'd used to gather up the coffee cups, but as much as I wanted to forget the two of them, I couldn't seem to get them out of my mind. Especially the woman. I just kept seeing those eyes of hers, cold and broken, hateful like the wind. As if there was a black wind blowing inside her too, and she'd been listening to it for too long. I kept seeing her lean forward across the counter and stare at the pastry container. And I kept seeing her rummage in that big alligator purse when I turned around with the slice of pie. Something funny about the way she'd been doing all that. As if she'd... As if she hadn't just been going through her wallet to pay me. As if she'd been... Oh my god. I ran back behind the counter. Then I ran again to the door, threw it open and stumbled out into the gravel lot but they were long gone. The night was a solid ebony wall. I didn't know what to do. What could I do? Maybe she'd done what I'd suspicioned, and maybe she hadn't. I couldn't be sure because I don't keep an inventory on the slots of the utensils behind the sandwich board, and I didn't know who they were or where they're going. I didn't even know what kind of car they were riding in, but I kept on standing there chills racing up and down my back, listening to that black wind scream and scream and scream and scream around me, feeling the cold, sharp edge of it cut into my bare flesh, cut straight to the bone, just like the blade of a knife. Black wind. Written by Bill Bronzini. of life.
Sways and bends wander our thoughts above the dark abyss. 